Today is October 4th, 2020, and you are listening to Sam Walking in the World, episode 25. It has been too long since I've heard the sound of you listening to my voice, and I'm glad to hear it again. Uh, first, I'd like to give a shout out to my new friends in New Zealand, Kiora, and to my new friends in Singapore, Ni Hao. Now my podcast is listened to in four continents and in both hemispheres. I haven't forgotten my brothers and sisters in Ireland and Germany. Guten Tag and top of the morning to ya. A week is a long time and a lot of stuff bubbles up out of this brain. Some of it is stupid, as you know. Um, some of it, this episode, will have to do with some lifey things. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wade into the dangerous waters of race. Uh... I'm going to talk a little bit about race and implicit bias. Um, I'm also going to talk politics because there's so much going on. Um, The new Supreme Court nominee um, has to be approved by the Senate still. The POTUS has COVID. That's something. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the the presidential debate. I know I'm a little behind the curve here, but I like to kind of let it settle in before I have my quick reactions. So as you know, my politics now, you can probably guess how I feel about things, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to articulate them anyway. Those of you who agree with me, I'm sure you'll like this. Those of you who don't, I'm sure you won't. But here we go. First, I'm going to talk about some stupid stuff. It is fall, and this is a beautiful area in the fall. And I was driving out kind of sort of in the country, and I was looking at some of the trees and some of the trees that have that bright red, like kind of as they're dying, really. But the colors of the trees are unbelievable. And I, I, I remind myself to take the time to look at them. Being that I'm not no longer unhappy, um, I don't really mind winter coming. Um, the one thing about winter, though, and if you're if you're from the Northeast, you know, one thing about winter is that it, it makes the world very small. Like the world is very big in, in the seasons other than winter. You can walk across lawns. Think about how little you walk across what would be grass in the wintertime. So, like, literally, the, the areas that you have to walk are much smaller. The ironic thing, though, is that with all the, tree, the trees losing their leaves, you can see very far. I look out the back of my house from the man cave, and I see trees and leaves and i i kind of have to get position myself in order to see through it when the dogs run down there if i see deer but in the winter it's just wood you know those those branches like almost like the bones of skeletons sometimes they get that little frost on them or the ice on them and that's also very beautiful but you can see for miles in the winter but you can't go there it's very weird but I'm a happy person now, and so I don't mind winter coming. And, I, you know, death is part of life. And uh, I know there's going to be another spring and summer coming around the bend. So this winter I'm going to concentrate on trying to enjoy it, not just getting through it. I think maybe that'll, I don't know, not make, not make it go faster, but make it more tolerable. So I'm going to try that. Also, in stupid stuff, I have some things that uh, <coughs> uh, occur in my classroom every day that, uh, I end up talking about with my students, and, and some of the stuff brings back memories from when I was in school. 
and, uh, and then I was asking the kids uh, about their lunches and if they trade things in their lunches. I said, with COVID now, they probably don't. But, you know, when, without COVID, what, what would you guys trade in your lunches? And they were like, oh, no, we still do it. We just kind of hide it. Like, you know what? That makes sense. But I remember I used to – I was a very challenging child. I was I was uh, curious, and I kind of uh, was kind of pumped up all the time. I don't know why. But I remember I used to trade my mom's garlic popcorn. My mom made the best garlic popcorn, like the little bit of garlic salt on it, and she popped it so that it was really big and fluffy. And everybody liked it because nobody else had parents that made it. So it was kind of a commodity when I was in middle school. And I would trade it for really sugary things because my mother limited the amount of sugar I could eat because I was so nuts. And I don't even know if it was because of sugar or not, but I'm sure it didn't help. Um, and so it's like giving somebody on steroids a, a really strong cup of coffee. But I traded my garlic popcorn for cereals, and my favorite one to trade for was honeycombs. Um, but then I got too hyper and I misbehaved. And so my mom told my teacher not to let me do it anymore. But much like the kids today, I kept doing it anyway. Somehow I eventually calmed down. I don't know how, maybe sports, maybe karate. But I remember, boy, I was nuts. So I want to give a special thank you to my parents for tolerating me. And then uh, I was thinking about some things that are different now. We were talking about uh, the, in, in class now, if I get busy with something, uh, if someone comes in, my, a teacher comes in and needs help with something on their Google Drive or whatever, and I give my kids a break uh, from instruction, immediately they find something to occupy themselves. They'll play like a game or something on their laptop because it's all laptops now. I don't think I've handed out a piece of paper for an assignment and definitely not this year, probably most of last year. So uh, Google Classroom is an amazing thing. But anyway, I give them a break, and they're immediately occupied. And we have windows. One whole wall of our classroom is windows, and you can see out, and you can see cars kind of going up the street. And, you know, sometimes we see deer, um, and there's, you know, trees and the weather, the wind blowing the trees and stuff. It's kind of pretty. You could just kind of sit there and zone out. But I know some of the kids never do that. They're always immediately occupied in some kind of game. And I was thinking, you know, I said to him, I was like, God, could you guys imagine just kind of thinking while you waited? Like if you were waiting for someone to pick you up and you were like, you know, sitting outside somebody else's house and your parents are coming to get you. Imagine just sitting there thinking while you waited. You know, I feel like th that it just doesn't happen anymore. Nobody's mind is just loose and free. It's always ends up immediately occupied on some kind of mindless game usually. Or social media, which at times is equally mindless. But just try to imagine thinking while you wait. I remind myself sometimes because I do the same thing. Immediately I'll go into my phone and start grading papers. Or I'll, I'll check my emails and respond to emails. and Just kind of busying myself. I'm, I'm going to try to, moving forward, I'm going to try to let my mind be free while I wait. I'm going to think while I wait. Instead of playing some game that they might as well call Brain Cell Destroyer. And then here's another thing. You ever notice how long it takes someone under 20 to find a pen or pencil? Like, oh, here's the number for the whatever it is. Uh, why don't you write it down? Grab a pencil. Literally, you could, you could eat a steak dinner by the time they find a pencil. 
I guess that's all right, but I don't think it's good to lose the ability to hand write. Um, and so I kind of still always have a pen or pencil on me most of the time. I like the act of writing. Um, but, God, it takes forever. Just a minute. Hold on. I, I was tutoring one kid. They didn't have a pencil in the house. Oh, I, I, I brought the pen. The, the kid's mother said, I, I, I had one, but I brought it to work. You had one pen, and you brought it to work, so now you have no pens. What are you going to, like, cut yourself and write in blood? The answer is no, of course. They're going to go on their phone. Type it in awful English. All right, that was kind of complaining. Um, I'm going to move on to lifey stuff right now before I take a break. Um, and then again, I am wading into the dangerous waters of race. We're, we're told that we need to have an honest discussion. I am going to honestly discuss it as it relates to events of the day. And there are, there are a couple things I want to talk about. There's, there's one thing that is a pr proposal by, um, the Democrats to use government, federal government subsidies to build projects like section eight housing, where the government pays the rent in the suburbs where ordinarily people that are below a certain income level don't have the ability to pay mortgages or property taxes or, you know, the financial wherewithal in order to live in the suburbs and go to the schools in the suburbs. And this project would, would supply the money for people who would not ordinarily be able to do that to live in suburban areas. And I, the idea is that they would be able to get out of their failing schools. You know how I feel about failing schools. And um, they would be able to be in a place where there's less violence, um, where schools are better, where there's more room, you know, you, your house and your yard and all that. And I just wonder about the wisdom of artificially crossing that line rather than having a person develop the gradually develop the wealth to be able to and, and the priorities to be able to live in a place where they would like to live that's not, say, in the inner city. And I wonder how people in the suburbs would respond to that. I know that, especially in New York, there are a lot of liberal-minded people who believe that in, in programs like this. But I wonder what they would feel like if it actually happened. And um, I, I, this is what I kept thinking to myself. It, it, in my opinion, it isn't where you live that determines how you live. It's how you live that determines where. If you live in a way that allows you to purchase a house, pay property taxes, and have your children behave properly at a suburban school, then by that point, you, you belong there. I don't know what would happen if, if let's just say, um, a more racially diverse environment, which is good. I wonder how taking people who are used to the habits that they have where they are now, habits that apparently don't qualify them financially to live in the suburbs, and how those habits 
would would they change suddenly because they're in a place where people tend to have better habits where people who have wealth because of choices that they make I mean the people who live in the suburbs did not receive giant inheritances and that's why they live in the suburbs it's decisions that they make in their daily life that allows them to have the wealth to do it or I, it, the common phenomenon where i teach which is at a private catholic school is people who live in the city because i'm not i'm not disparaging people who live in the city but there are plenty of people who live in the city who live in a way that allows them to generate enough wealth to send their students to this private school and it's it's fairly expensive but i have to say this about my school it is a blue collar private school the parents work hard and make sacrifices in order to be able to have their students go to an environment where there are high standards high standards of behavior high standards of uh, academics and having taught in an unnamed city school district as long as i did i saw i have to say terrible habits I saw not being on time. I saw not caring about doing work. I saw um, the inability to get a hold of a parent when there was a behavioral or academic issue. I saw general non-compliance. And I, I think that if those behaviors were exhibited in the suburban school, those students would be suspended at a fairly high rate. And I just wonder how statistically that would look. Would it be suspect? Would it be would it be um, attributed to implicit bias? That the the worst if if the demographics of students that were suspended happened to fall into certain racial groups, would those would those suspensions be looked at as racial? I don't know. And then I thought about this. I, I, I heard somebody, I, I forget who it was. I, I think it might have been Anthony Brian Logan, African-American conservative. Uh, he has a great podcast. I recommend it. Anthony Brian Logan. And he, he asked this question. Should race be essential or incidental? Should race be essential or incidental to who we are? You know, and the fact that Democrats have trouble accepting the idea that our race is incidental, I believe, not essential, is because of their claim that African-Americans in particular are treated in a uniquely bad way because of race. And so it's important to look for evidence, find out it can't we can't allow that. If that is the case, I believe we can't allow that. It has to be rooted out. And so. When we look for this implicit bias, places that are commonly referred to are the law. In the law, the law produces apparently disproportionate outcomes. People charged, people convicted, people incarcerated. The legal system, though, as written, has been amended since the 1960s. So it, it, it is not codified in law that certain groups should be treated different than other groups. But outcomes, in many cases, a large number of African-Americans incarcerated. In our school, a large number of African-Americans, we should say people of color, non-whites, were suspended 
for particular behaviors. But the statistics looked like it was because of race. But you have to make a causal connection there. You have to, you have to decide that that, that disparity is, is intentional rather than incidental. Um, and we, we look for it in police brutality. But as I said in a previous episode, as awful as some of the instances that we see on the news are, across the spectrum, statistics don't bear it out. They just don't. Not that it doesn't happen, but statistically speaking, if we were to look and see what we needed to fix, statistics do not bear out um, uh, police brutality, especially against a particular racial group. It's what ends up highlighted, and we see tons of it on the news. But if you look it up, I encourage you, look up the statistics of unarmed African Americans shot by cops. Look up the instances of... of uh, violence occurring during arrests. The likelihood of being shot by a cop is much, much higher for a white person. Not that it doesn't happen and not that there isn't racism. There is. But is it broad enough? Is it applied broadly enough to say that we have a systemic problem? I don't think that it's it's in the availability of opportunity. The black unemployment rate recently before COVID, was the lowest in American history, which means African-Americans were largely employed, had an opportunity to be largely employed. Potential college admission and jobs are abundant in the rising awareness of the need for diversity. Every company knows how important it is to have diversity. And there are, there are opportunities for careers and for, for college admission. It's only in retrospective statistical analysis that we see disparity. And it's troubling because we would rather not have that be the case. But can we apply malicious intent to those outcomes? I just don't think so. If you do your homework and look at it. But it's like, I'm almost like personally, I almost feel like just surrendering to it. You know, I looked up implicit bias. Implicit means essentially or very closely connected with. Always found in. And then the the example is the values implicit in society's ethos. So embedded is a good way to put it. I think of things that are embedded that I'm very aware of. You can see them in the system. Like nutrition. Nutrition has, has developed and grown and... You can see in every product you buy, you can see the calories, you can see all the information that you need to know, the ingredients, um, and, and they're, they're constantly adapting diets to, to be healthier. I see, I see something systemic there. I see an implicit emphasis on health and well-being in nutrition. I don't see an implicit bias when it comes to race. I just I feel like I'm getting close to surrendering to it because it's not worth sometimes it's not worth the fight. I go out in the world and I treat people fairly. I believe at the end of the day that is really all all my responsibility. I'm, I'm told that I can never counteract my white privilege. And now again, I'm sorry if I'm offending anybody, but I'm trying to have an honest conversation. I'm told I can never counteract my white privilege. My white bias is implicit 
in everything I do, even though I don't know it. Even though I admit it, if I decide to admit it and try to avoid all racist actions during the day, because I'm white and I will always be white, the best I can do, I'm thinking, is like go to confession every day. You know, but it gets to the point where as soon as I walk in the confessional and say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned, the priest says, let me guess, racism? I say, yep. He says, all right, do the usual, 10 Hail Marys, and then I'm covered for the rest of the day. I just try to avoid looking in any mirrors because then I'll see that I'm white and I'll rediscover my implicit bias. I'm sorry, but it's ridiculous. I, I really do hope I didn't offend anybody, but I'm keeping it real. And uh, I think I need a break to gather myself after that. And so I will be back after this. Welcome back to Sam Walking in the World, episode 25. That message was brought to you by my boy, Milky. Now, I want to talk about the Supreme Court. Um, it looks very probable that Amy Coney Barrett will be replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg in her seat on the Supreme Court. And this is a big deal. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a, a pro-choice champion. And she was strongly on the side of uh, free and and uh, healthy abortions, if there's such a thing. Amy Coney Barrett, as we know, is a devout Catholic, and uh, therefore she is appears to be, at least, pro-life. And this is a gigantic shift on the court. And as it seems now, a lot of things end up at the Supreme Court <clears throat> to be determined. Our coming election might end up at the Supreme Court to be determined. And I have a fear that, I'll talk more about this later, but the, the Democrats are talking about adding justices to the court in order to be able to have votes that would be in their favor should issues go to the Supreme Court. And it makes me feel like if we do that, I'll talk more about this later, but if we do that, it's like changing the Supreme Court into another Congress. Whoever gets elected can appoint more of them, and then there'll be more votes, and then everything will end up coming down to a vote in the Supreme Court the way it ought to come down to a vote in Congress. The Supreme Court's job is to interpret the laws as they are written. It's amazing to me that that can be a controversial statement in this political time, but it is. And Amy Coney Barrett is what they say a, I think they call it a constructionist, meaning that she believes in the actual words of the Constitution. So anyway, I was watching uh, the news the other day, and Chuck Schumer, the minority leader in the Senate, uh, senator from New York, senior senator, um, he was uh, he was talking about uh, Amy Coney Barrett's alleged threat to women's rights. He actually said that. She threatens women's rights by replacing the spot that Ginsburg held. And, and what he means by that as it relates to this particular topic is unrestricted abortion. Women's right to unrestricted abortion. Now, as I told you before, I, I don't come down black and white on this issue. I, I, I don't really have a solid, solidly formed opinion. Although, like I said before, I don't think that a baby that's viable should be aborted. I have a very strong feeling about third-term abortions. At the same time, I believe God wants us to be free, and, if, and a woman has the freedom to choose. And so I, I guess it comes down to 
uh, for me, I guess, allowing it and then um, showing my disappointment for it rather than trying to take the right away. I think that's where my brain is at right now. But anyway, Chuck Schumer described Amy Coney Barrett's election um, an, uh, appointment as a threat to women's rights. And like I said, meaning unrestricted abortion. And then he said this. He said, well, could only have been a Freudian slip. And they, they call Ruth Bader Ginsburg RBG, although she was accidentally referred to as B.I.G. by Kamala Harris the other day. But she said he said this, RBG must be rolling over in her grave. And then he realizing that it's strange, it sounded strange and kind of atheist if she's still in her grave and aware. Um, and then he's pointed to the sky and added, in heaven, he said. She must be rolling over her in her grave in heaven. Think about that for a second. First of all, if Ruth Bader Ginsburg's consciousness is still alive in her grave, the first thing we need to do is get her out of it. She must be suffocating. Or the second part of his statement, in heaven, means that she has a soul. And she must be in heaven. I don't know why they would put her in a grave in heaven. You think that in heaven, the first thing you'd ask for if you were inside a grave is let me out of this grave. But I, I think it reflects his trying, trying, to, um, trying to have a duality in his philosophy or his politics where, where she's there, there is no heaven and she's in her grave or there is a heaven and she's there and upset about abortions becoming illegal potentially illegal, which I don't think they ever will, as I've said before. But isn't that strange? Like, you know, the, here's the thing. The, the Democrats' dilemma is that they must criticize Barrett's dogmatic Catholicism without appearing atheist, because God is written over and over again in our founding documents. And the one sticking point that I think separates groups, that there's two kinds of people— People who believe that our rights are given to us by our government and people who believe our rights are given to us by God. And in the founding documents, it says our rights come from God and it's the government's job to protect them, not create them. I think that fundamentally that's an either or. I happen to come down on the side of, of I can feel my rights coming from God. I, if there was a government that tried to tell me I couldn't be free, I would rebel against it. But they're trying to to criticize their Catholicism, but also not appear too atheistic. And that the Declaration of Independence' most pivotal statement, like I said, is one they'd rather not abide by. Some of the time. And I just wonder, I imagine, if there's a heaven... And Ruth Bader Ginsburg is there. Is she happy about late-term abortions? And I, like I said, I, I, I don't come down super firmly on either side, but I, I recognize sometimes paradoxes in people's thinking. So that's that. Um, in other up-to-date news, the POTUS has COVID. That's another big issue. Many people are saying, you reap what you sow. You don't take it seriously. Gonna end up getting it, <clears throat> you're, and, and your leadership suggests that it's not important to take it seriously. So other people are following your lead, not wearing masks, and then they're spreading it. 
I don't know if that's necessarily true. We are all free people. We can decide for ourselves whether or not to wear a mask. Just as he decided not to, and he got COVID. But it is a double-edged sword, I think, for Democrats. And in a way, I think it's kind of a lose-lose. If they criticize Trump while he's sick, they're going to appear kind of ruthless. But if they if they wish him well, as many, many have done, they're going to anger their base. There are people out there saying that they hope he dies. So if they're wishing him well and their base wants him to die, you're kind of in a between a rock and a hard place. But I want to get I want to get to this idea of uh, including the concept of the Supreme Court, packing the Supreme Court, essentially changing the Constitution from what it was intended to be. And I think honestly, as I think about it, and I know this is very political, and and it's you know according to my own bias. But I think the Democrats wish for a one-party rule, a system with a one-party rule. Enough justices in the Supreme Court so that should any case go there, they would win with their liberal philosophy or liberal policy, liberal law that they want to institute. And they, and, and own, add states like uh, Puerto Rico and um, I forget what the other one was, District of Columbia, so that they had Democratic senators. And almost establish a permanent position of power. Because they're so sure they're right. <clears throat> right? They only want what's good for us. So why shouldn't they be given complete power to be able to do it? Instead of having to fight through these obstinate Republicans with their outdated ideas. But if, I, I wonder if they're really thinking about the long term of one party rule. I mean, it is universally true that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And if one party, either one, ever ended up securing that kind of a power structure, it would become corrupt. Um, and some people say that we are, are divided. I keep hearing that. We're so divided. We've never been more divided as a nation. I think we're balanced. I think we're balanced. I think the fact that we have such differing opinions that coalesce in ways that are kind of up against each other, it allows for, a, I guess, a balance. It, it, we, it's hard to swing that hard in an extreme direction when you have an equal and opposite force on the other side. Now, there are things that I wish were, and the Democrats don't, and they're stopping it, and I wish they were. But I understand that's the way it works out in the system with two parties and two power structures, which is, I think, critically important. Um, and it's just funny. It's ironic. Like, uh, the Democrats accused Trump of planning a coup, not transferring power if he loses the election. They actually did that in 2016. I don't know how it just f escaped the news. They, they illegally acquired warrants to spy on his campaign. I don't think that's arguable at this point. Now, if you believe that it was necessary because you think Trump is so evil, that's fine, fair. I mean, not fair, but fine for you to think. But you can't destroy the system in the process because eventually you're going to be on the other side. You can't shoot the referee just because you're losing the game. Because then everything will turn to hell. 
it'll be a, it'll be kind of every man for himself. Anything goes, and we have a, a government structure to prevent that. And it's just that the, I hear this comparison too. Merrick Garland um, was nominated by President Obama, but he was never uh, uh, you know he was never given the spot on the Supreme Court because Republicans had the Senate and they would not approve him. And that's the way it works. It's a false comparison to Amy Coney Barrett because right now they, the, the Republicans have the presidency and they have the Senate. That's literally how the structure is supposed to work. But I feel like when Democrats are losing, they want to knock all the pieces off the chessboard. I know what happens on both sides. I'm just talking about this particular instance. And, and I, I just it's dangerous to undermine the, the pillars of democracy because your side happens to not be getting the majority of the vote. They want to eliminate the filibuster. That's another thing that would, that would prevent the minority from being able to push back. And it's, it's like you don't, people don't realize it. That's how fascism begins. It begins with good intentions. We're going to take care of you. We have a clear idea of what's right, and we're going to apply it to you. And, and since we were so sure of it, we're going to force it on you. Like how else does fascism come? It doesn't just come from the right. It doesn't just come from the left. It comes from well-intentioned people who are given too much power. That is what I have to say about that. I'm going to take a quick break. When I get back, I'm going to talk about the presidential debates. Uh, me and uh, Talking to Frankie talks a lot, did our impression of it, and uh, I will play that for you. I think you will get a kick out of it. I'll do that after these messages. Hi, this is a great podcast. Everybody should listen to it. Welcome back to Sam Walking in the World. Before I get into my own discussion of the debate, I want to give you uh, talking to Frank. You talks a lot, and my impression of the debate as we recreated one minute of it, and here it is. Mr. Vice President, you have the floor for two minutes. You you are a liar, and all you do is lie because you are a liar. You Your son uh, uh, walked you out of China with billions of dollars to manage because you are a bad you, uh, man. You are, are in bed with China, and you, you blew it on China, and you don't know how to manage the economy. You poor people, you, and you messed up you, um, COVID you don't, because you are been in office for 47 years, and you don't know what you're doing because I've done more in 47 seconds than you've done. And you are a liar, and you messed up from dementia and you and don't you even know what you're doing. Gentlemen, gentlemen, you're talking at the same time. Nobody can hear you. Well, you, you, I, and that's only you because you, you have been in, in Washington for 47 years and you don't know what you're doing you because your son COVID. took money you from China and doing. you have messed up COVID. You and only it, paid $750 in taxes last year because you hate poor people and you're ruining You don't know what you're talking about because and you are mess, uh, I, I've and you done more COVID in, in four years than you. And you, you are a liar you, who lies a lot and you don't know what you're doing because you are a clown. This is a fake orange clown. Welcome back to Sam Walking in the World, episode 25. I hope I haven't lost my whole audience with my previous opinions, but I'm having an honest conversation with you. <clears throat> that message was brought to you, by the way, by Hayden, a man in a boy's body. All right, now I'm going to talk about the debate. I've had a whole week to think about it, and I think my impressions have kind of solidified, and I'm able to express them. There are certain things about the debate. First of all, the debate was painful. 
It was painful to listen to. It was like listening to two people in your life arguing and, and talking over each other. Even if you happen to agree with one of them on most issues, which I do, it was painful. Even my dog hated it. Honestly, I could tell she was getting upset. We had the sound up, obviously, when we were watching it. And my dog was visibly frustrated by the sounds. I think she sensed the tension. She went in the other room. Eventually, I went in the other room, too. And when it comes to Trump, like I said, I, I believe in conservative values, but there are times when Donald Trump, the man, um, is behaves in a way that I wish he wouldn't. But he is who he is. You know, we, we, we try to expect these people as people to be perfect in some way, and they're not. He's obviously flawed. We forget that we're all flawed when we think about how he is flawed. Um, but at least he's he's who he is. That's one thing that you can you can honestly say is he is who he is. He's not putting up a front to hide his opinions about things. But <clears throat> as I was thinking about it and watching the debate, I thought to myself, Trump Trump needed to be a lot less Sean Hannity and a lot more Ben Shapiro. If you know who those two people are, then you know what I'm talking about. This is what occurred to me, and I think about it when I'm arguing with somebody or, it, you know, in a civilized argument with somebody. There is a skill and a, and a certain confidence in allowing your opponent to state their case. It doesn't become truth just because it's been spoken. You know, letting your opponent speak their case as far from the truth as you know it is or believe it is. Allowing them to state it without interrupting. Allowing whoever is the judge of the debate, the audience of the debate. Allowing them to hear the other side clearly. Because if I believe I'm right, then I know upon them finishing, I'll be able to demonstrate its falsity with my effective criticism. It's hard because you don't want what you don't believe to be true to be uttered at all. Like it might stick and you don't want to let that happen. But that's not really how you convince people. You don't convince people by stopping someone from saying something. You convince them by saying something better in return. It is that it is the the great value of freedom of speech, and and it is essential to effective arguing. And Donald Trump did not practice it in that debate. But to the substance of the debate, there are some things that I want to talk about. First, when Donald Trump brought up Hunter Biden, uh, Joe Biden's son, and his having taken money from China to, you know, be, being given to his investment firm for him to manage, which means making enormous commissions and a billion dollars. You make a million dollars in commissions. So he's immediately become rich by this influx of money from China, our, our geopolitical rival. And also um, from his interaction with Burisma, um, a company that was known to be corrupt, being investigated, and he he accepted money from Burisma. And then this this other one where he supposedly not supposedly he did. It's not even in debate. Even on, in in liberal outlets, they're acknowledging that Hunter Biden took three point five million dollars from this Moscow billionaire who has ties to Putin, this woman. They call her the mayor of Moscow. 
I guess she's very influential and extremely rich. When confronted with this in the debate, as hard as it was to hear with Trump talking over him, which I, I can't say enough how much I hated, but Biden's response was that those, those things have been discredited. He kept saying that. That's been discredited. That has been debunked, he said. My question is, where? I'm still I'm still in the area of it may be true, it may not be true, but I've seen it reported in many outlets, and I hear people saying it's been discredited. If, if anyone out there knows where it's been discredited, I would love to, for you to send me a message. Send a message to the podcast so I can learn, inform me. Right now, I don't, I don't feel like I've heard anything that discredited that. Now, whether or not you think it's right, whether or not you think it's wrong, is a separate issue. But whether or not it happened, yeah, facts matter. But I, to, to my knowledge, all media outlets verified and reported Hunter taking the money. So it seems like Biden is basically saying it doesn't matter because the media says it doesn't matter. They reported that it happened and then went on to something else. Or called it a distraction from Trump not handling COVID. I love how Biden likes to talk about any issue that his opponent, some opponents or critics bring up by calling it a distraction from what we ought to be thinking about. Who's, who, who, whose job is it to decide what it is we ought to be talking about? Right? If it's just a distraction, he should handle it, toss it to the side, and then f- focus on the things that are actually are true and what matter. Literally, just about every single criticism. He calls it, no, 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 I'm not. Would you pack the Supreme Court? Would you add Supreme Court justices if if Barrett is appointed and uh, approved? Would you add more justices to counterbalance her conservative views? I won't answer that. That's a dis- that, that would become what everyone's talking about, so it's a distraction I'm not going to talk about. I think it's pretty important. You know, he's basically kind of saying, look at the shiny object over here. Don't look at that. However you feel on it, it ought to be contemplated. So I just don't, I feel like in, in that way, any, any honest skeptic is wondering whether or not that's true still. And it matters if it is. Especially if we're accusing Trump of having ties to Russia, being a pawn of Putin. The, the vice president's son is, is doing business with a corrupt Russian company taking money, millions of dollars from a Moscow billionaire with ties to Putin. If one matters, then the other matters. I, I wish I wish that neither would happen. But I want to know which ones did. Did both? Did one? Did the other? And then here's another thing. Um, when when discussion of the, the potential appointment of Amy Coney Barrett came up, uh, Donald Trump is against her being approved by the Senate and installed as a Supreme Court justice. He's, he's against that happening before the election. And his answer was astonishing. The reason why, he said, is because the people should have a say. There's an election coming up. The people are, are, are going to be denied their say in whether or not Amy Coney Barrett should be appointed. And it, it's it, to me, the the... The elephant in the room is that the people did have their say. They elected a president and they elected senators. The term is still ongoing. The people have had their say. 
people might currently disagree with it and might vote something to the opposite. But as is right now, the people have had their say in an election. And they they elected people such that Amy, Amy Coney Barrett is able to be appointed and installed. And they say, well, if the Democrats were in the situation, they would do the same thing. I can't help but believe that's true. <clears throat> so that's how I feel about that. Now, Antifa. The president was asked several times to condemn white people. I've heard a video. If you haven't seen it, you just, just Google it and try and find it on YouTube or something. The president literally has denounced white supremacists and the KKK and neo-Nazis. It's got to be approaching a hundred times. And I have to be honest, he did not do it force as forcefully enough as he should have in the debate. But the question ends up being, when are you going to stop asking me this? And and Trump, rather than rather than forcefully condemning it again, he pivoted to Antifa. And he was talking about all the damage that this leftist group is doing, actual physical violence that you can see. And and Biden's response to this was equally astonishing. He said. Antifa is an idea, not an organization. Now, I'll grant you, it is an idea. It is a philosophy. But it's kind of hard for me to watch the news, see the clips, and and think that it isn't an organization. I've never seen an idea break windows and set fires. Why do ideas need to loot televisions? Answer me that. But I saw night after night in the streets of Portland was people dressed in uniform clothing, acting in coordination for what looked like a specific and shared goal. These uniform people looked to be employing what acted very much like a planned and cohesive strategy. You don't have to dig too deep into the bag of words you call a vocabulary to find a very common and appropriate word we use for such an undertaking. It's called organization. If the nightly destruction of Portland still doesn't measure up to your definition of an organization, how about the new country that was established in the city of Seattle? Chaz or CHOP. Does a self-described country count as an organization? A section of a city occupied and self-patrolled by a group of same-thinking people with a demarcated border a list of collectively agreed-upon demands, and a freaking name. If that in Joe Biden's mind is not an organization, then I need to know what one is. I'm sure he won't be asked in the next debate, though. So frustrating. So frustrating. And I feel bad. I feel kind of whiny right now. but And I'm really not. I have, I have a confidence and a trust in the system that we have. I know it will work out. Some things might not be to to my approval, but it will work out. And as, as worked up as I get into a frenzy about the the logic of it, the honesty of it, dishonesty of it, I know in my heart that if we don't destroy the actual institutions, three branches of government, checks and balances, elections, it's what separates us from banana republics. No matter how sure someone might be that they're right on either side, no matter how good their intentions might be, 
You cannot shoot the referee. So that is what I have to say about that. And I believe I have bent your ear enough and I probably offended so many people that I might never even have a podcast again. So this might be the last one. But not if I have something to say about it, which I always will. So with that, I thank you again for listening, and I hope to see you next week. This has been Sam Walking in the World.